So the odds of experience, experiencing client aggression were higher amongst men than women. The odds of experiencing colleague aggression were higher amongst women than men. So that's a pretty solid finding from our study. In this episode of Exploring Violence and Society, you will hear from Associate Professor Chris Natalia from Flinders University about her work on the gendered nature of violence in the domestic violence workforce. Often violence against masculine workforces is criminalised. So if you think about violence against police, um, violence against prison workers, for example. But here we have a feminised workforce where... um, Levels of violence perpetrated by clients are really high, but it's not criminalised and it hasn't been subject to a lot of research. This is a podcast for critical and imaginative conversations about this complex social issue. My name is Ben Lohmeyer and welcome to Exploring Violence and Society. My guest today is Associate Professor of Sociology, Chris Natalia. Uh, She is Inequalities Research Theme Leader at the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Flinders Uni. She's also a member of the Flinders Uni Social Work Innovation Research Living Space and co-convener of the Australian Sociological Association Families and Relationships Thematic Group. Hi, Chris. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. No worries at all. All right, so a bit of background on your research. Uh, Broadly, you're focused on the gendered nature of familiar and intimate relationships as lived experiences and sites for policy intervention. Um, your Your current projects include child support as a financial transfer and policy, Uh, children's understanding of home in the context of their parents' separation and divorce, as well as the housing and support needs and experiences of young women who have survived domestic violence, family violence or sexual assault. Now, all of this is really interesting and significant to the theme of this podcast. I'm hoping we get a chance to cover as much of it as we can, but we will see. But I'm particularly interested in, and the reason I invited Chris on the podcast today, is to talk specifically about a project that she is part of with Deb King, uh, Sarah Wendt, Kate Seymour, Natasha Cortis, and Kirsten Mikaitis. Now, the project is called Set Up to Fail, focusing on the family violence workforce. Is, have I got that title correct? It's a uh, work in progress, the title, but that will good for, that'll be good for the moment. All yeah. right, working title, there we go. So can you give us a little bit of background on the project that you and your colleagues have been working on? So the project is basically looking at uh, social services workers' um, experiences of violence in their work. And so when we're talking about social services workers, um, we're particularly focused on the domestic and family violence and sexual assault workforces. But the project kind of sits within what's a growing field that's starting to challenge this sort of taken-for-granted idea that violence is part of a lot of social services work. So here, you know, if you think about more youth work, lots of social work, lots of working with marginalised and disadvantaged people, there can be a component of violence and that's kind of been accepted as a normal risk, just Mm. part of what's going on and part of what you can expect as a worker. So for a long time there wasn't a lot of research done on violence as it's experienced by social service um, workers. 
So it was, of course, renowned and accepted in the field as something you're probably going to have to face, something that's not pleasant by any means, but it hadn't kind of trickled into academic focus or necessarily explicit policy focus and kind of then human resources issues as well, management issues. So there's increasingly recognition that client violence is an issue and so we've got this kind of growing field around that. But there's now also um, some talk around the fact that social services workers can also be subject to violence by colleagues as well, okay. as indeed we all can, right? Sure, that, that's yeah. possibly whether it's bullying or verbal abuse or physical abuse or mobbing. There's all kinds of definitions of violence. So what we're interested in doing is looking at the experiences of client violence and colleague violence um, that we are seeing in the domestic and family violence and sexual assault workforces. So to do this, um, we're doing secondary data analysis at the moment on um, survey data. So in 2017, the Social Policy Research Centre um, was contracted by the Australian government to generate data on a whole array of issues facing the workforce in that sector. And that was part of um, the third action plan of Australia's national plan to reduce violence against women and their children. So there's this recognition that so much um, responsibility is placed on the shoulders of these workers and we mm -hmm. expect so much of frontline workers, mm -hmm. policy workers in the field, but we don't really know a lot about the workforce generally. Sure. So the violence focus was part of this much broader survey. So what our Social Policy Research Centre did was survey workers at non-government services who were receiving government funding. So that was kind of the focus. Um, yep. And they captured data from 320 services and around about, um, well, ex exactly 1,157 <laughs> practitioners. So what, what, yeah, exactly, that's specific. So what we've done <laughs> is go back to those data and just look at the experiences of people um, who... Um, kind of fit our particular parameters and that's a little over 900 respondents who wow. are working directly with clients um, either in domestic family violence or sexual assault kind of areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the, that's the background and kind of how we've come to that, um, that focus. I mean, part of it too is this weirdly, I think weirdly, not a lot of... Um, work done on the experiences of people in domestic family violence sector right. and we're particularly interested in the gender dimensions of that sure, because of more. well I mean that workforce is gendered in that it's you know it's majority of women which is true of social services generally it's dealing with a gendered form of violence mm. um, and it's happening in a context in which the work is gendered and by that, I mean it tends to be assumed to be based on natural caring skills rather sure. than knowledge and technical skills. Um, it's devalued. Mm. It's often invisible. It can be precarious. Mm. And there's, again, a kind of acceptance that violence is going to be embedded in this. So, so far as we can tell, people haven't focused on violence in this particular 
sector as it's experienced by workers. Lots of done, lots of work done on child protective service workers, for example, um, people working in residential group homes, but not so much on this. So we're interested in looking okay. at violence with this particular group and looking at the gender dimensions of violence. Yeah. Great. Mm. Okay. Because once you sort of lay it out like that and point it out, it seems quite obvious that someone should be studying this and that that violence would be there. But but it's important, I think, to step back in the way that you had and say, look, there's a range of assumptions within this workforce that means that this violence is often quite invisible uh, at the individual experience level, but also almost at that organisational level as well. I can't remember where I was reading, but um, it was actually just this morning I was reading somewhere... um, might have been Donna Baines who was commenting that often violence against masculine workforces is criminalised. So if you think about violence against police, sure. um, violence against prison workers, for example, mm. um, and a lot of violence in masculine industries or danger in masculine industries like mining, for example, or forestry is subject to occupational health and safety um, mm. lens. Yep. But here we have a feminised workforce where um, levels of violence perpetrated by clients are really high. You know, between, you know, sort of 40 to 60% of workers will say they've had at least one experience in the last 12 months. And that's across nations and jurisdictions. But it's not criminalised and it hasn't been subject to a lot of research. So it's assumed, as you said, part of the role. You just have to learn to manage this... It's something that you've chosen perhaps to get into and therefore you shouldn't shouldn't think too much about it or think critically about it or question some of the sources of it. That seems yeah. to be the assumption. Or maybe it's not serious violence. I mean, uh, just okay. that, I don't know, um, but that comparison with violence against police or prison officers really made me think, oh, there is something really interesting going on here, that that violence is taken so seriously. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, I mean, that's violence against agents of the state as well, and social service workers don't have that same kind of... They're not the embodiment of state authority, so mm. there's that symbolic dimension. But, yeah, I don't know, it's interesting. There's so many layers in there, and in particular I'm thinking about the last point where we've got social services that are heavily reliant on government funding, yeah, so yeah. they're not the embodiment of the state, but they but kind of are. they kind of are. Yeah, Even as I said that, I was thinking, yeah, they're... And I'm sure a lot of the workers would not see themselves as the embodiment of the Absolutely. state. And, of course, there's a lot of tension around, you know, funding expectations and, and how that's shaped social services work and state expectations of those workers. Mm-hmm. But, I, yeah, but I think there's something interesting there about relationship to the state as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay, yeah. so there's lots of bits and pieces in there. I'm yeah, sure yeah. we could pick up any number <laughs> of them and talk about it at length. Um, I'm... Particularly interested, though, you talked about uh, the violence that the workers in the force mm. uh, experience from clients, mm. as well as the violence that they might experience from being in the workforce. Mm. Uh, I think maybe to unpack that further, it'd be really great if you could tell us a little bit more about how you think about violence in mm. this project, because you also mentioned that violence can be defined in many mm. ways, mm. and how we define it often will make some things more visible or other things less visible. And that's very much what your project is doing, is making something visible. It is. So how do you define violence and how does it make your interested 
element of violence visible? So one of the issues of the um, study is it doesn't give people a specific definition of violence because okay. the survey wasn't specifically focused on oh, that. So there's okay. not those kind of multiple dimensions that sure. you'd have in a kind of tailor-made survey around this. Yeah, so okay. I guess it's any kind of threatening or harmful act, right? Sure. Um, I'm and um, my co-authors are quite interested in how client violence might be different from colleague violence. Mm. So, I mean, there's been such a focus on client violence in the literature and in policy, which I feel kind of assumes that violence is a characteristic of the people that social workers um, and social services workers are are working with yeah. so it's something about clients they're they're vulnerable they've often got multiple needs so within our kind of cultural discourse they're probably going to be dodgy and a bit unsafe anyway like, sure. and academics yep. would not be coming from that but I just I hear echoes of those kind of cultural framings of vulnerable populations in this focus on client violence yeah. um and so we do want to move away from the idea that violence is somehow intrinsic in people. Mm-hmm. Violence is always an interaction, but we're more interested in the kinds of institutional, socio-political, structural elements that facilitate violence. And in the workplace, the ways in which... Um, those elements can actually kind of embed violence into the logic of how work is undertaken and thus, you know, the possibilities of violence from clients, from colleagues, and then how that violence is understood and responded to as well. So client, so violence, it's not just individual, it's not just interactional, it's social and structural, which I guess is no surprise coming from a sociologist, right? <laughs> it's not really a spoiler, really. is it? <laughs> that makes sense though, thank you. Um, yeah, that, that's clear that in our culture there's that dominant individual responsibility discourse that we say, you know, any issues that we see, they must be about somebody's personal character flaw or you know, to create change even is about changing the individual. Um, but your research seems to be shifting away from that and saying there's something about our culture, about the way the workforce is set up, about the assumptions that go along with being a human services worker that can be themselves violent. Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, Jeff Hearn has done some interesting work on um, gender and violence in organisations and he's made the point that so many organisations are created um, in some kind of relationship to violence, whether that's um, implicit or explicit, indirect or direct. So if you think about domestic family violence agencies, they are created directly in response and explicitly in response to violence. Sure. So that's going to structure how violence is spoken about, how it's understood, mm. what violence is recognised, maybe what violence isn't recognised. We're also, as a research group, interested in how social services are created in a colonial and settler society, which 
itself perpetrates ongoing violence against um, Indigenous people. We're interested in how domestic family violence um, agencies can also be understood as an articulation of state violence and authority against marginal and vulnerable populations. Mm. So I think all of our organisations have a relationship to violence. Um, we don't tend to think about it that way. So universities, we don't think of ourselves as having a relationship to violence, but we do in the socio-political context that we're working, in terms of what we study, in terms of what might be defined as violence or not violence, you know, in the context of know, human resources, occupational health and safety. So we're interested in, I guess, this kind of nested definitions um, and logics of violence. These are things, so violence is something that's doesn't just happen in a context, it's structured into the context, um, depending on the logics and the cultures and the systems that institutions are, are working with. Yeah, great. Yeah, does okay. that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. Um, it's also large and quite scary yeah, yeah, <laughs> in a way, yeah. um, which is not, not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, for this conversation, it's, it's really useful because you're exposing those assumptions and layers of violence that exist within our culture and pointing out that this isn't a conversation that um, is exclusively for maybe a small portion of our population or for academics or, or for people that work in this workforce, but actually that there's a larger conversation here that needs to take place in which we unpack some of these ways of violence is built into our systems and cultures. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely fair to say. And it is really big and it makes it hard to know where to go because lots of the stuff on, say, client violence against social work, social services workers, at an institutional or organisational level, then you'll just get a training manual that um, tells you how better to manage the violence or self-care around protecting and taking care of yourself when you've been subject to violence or maybe, you know, therapy through an um, employee assistance program or something like that, all of which can be really useful on, on an individual level and I think are sort of necessary protective factors and necessary um, workers' rights, I think, mm. as well. But to stop there is not nearly enough because you're not um, finding any way of stopping this violence just kind of cycling through. But then as soon as you take a structural approach, I always feel like you're just left with, well, what, burn it down, smash the state, destroy the patriarchy, <laughs> which, stretch, yeah. like, I'm totally for, but, <laughs> but that's semi-tongue-in-cheek for, for the listeners out there. Um <laughs> But that doesn't really help in terms of, like, that's the big picture, but how you then make steps to get to that is mm. is really, really challenging because dismantling structures is so fundamentally difficult. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's really helpful because it helps us see uh, the connection, and this is, again, one of the themes of the, this podcast, that, um, that sociological imagination that yeah. Mills talks about, the connection between the personal trouble and the public issue. And so we can see here that... Sure, we can respond at the individual level and we create a new training manual that says, here's how to avoid violence from clients. Or mm. as an organisation, here's a policy. Here's how to avoid violence from your co-workers. From your co-workers, yeah. Um, so we've got that individual responsibility very much still very embedded in that response. But we want the other response too. We want to be able to say, okay, here's how we can start changing the structures that enable these 
forms of violence that exist as assumptions. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to think about that space yet. It seems like the project's still relatively new. Um, and apart from just burning it all down and starting again, <laughs> if, if you Joke. were talking to you know, the next batch of human services workers or domestic violence workers, how would you prepare them for what they're going into? What would you ask them maybe to consider as they think about beginning their work? Look, I feel like that's a question that my social work colleagues are in a much better position to answer than I can. Well, I can talk about the value of the sociological imagination, Great. if not training social yeah. services workers. Um, and I do think a lot about this because I teach first-year sociology here at Flinders University. And... It strikes me the sociological imagination um, can be such a radical and empowering kind of tool in people's lives because it allows you to understand that what's happening to you is almost never about you, okay? It's always about these broader patterns and these broader these broader structures. Mm, okay, tell us more about that. Well, it... it <laughs> You know, it's that, well, you know, C. Wright Mills talks about that link between biography and history, um, which I read as social structure more broadly. If you're a social services worker or you're doing your placement or your training and someone is violent towards you, whether that's verbally abusive, physically abusive, whether that's a colleague or a client... It is always, I think, incumbent upon us to think about our involvement in that interaction, but to assume that it's just our fault or just the other person's fault absolutely decontextualises a lot of the violence that we live with um, or that we live in threat of um, or that is taken for granted in our workplaces. Um, so as social services workers, as youth workers, I, you know, as a sociologist um, who's an academic, I think it's really important that we think about... We think about where we sit in these structures of violence, so how we're privileged, how we're vulnerable, how do we stand against it, how are we likely to be subject to it um, and to perhaps appreciate that you're not going to be able to fix it, whatever kind of articulation of violence that might be, whether it's violence in a client's life, violence towards you, you're not going to be able to fix it yourself because these are structural issues. And so I think my, my personal and my sociological position is that you can't have an individual response that will ultimately be effective. You've got to have communal responses. You've got to have group responses. This is collective action. It's not individual action that we need to be looking towards. I think that can then simultaneously encourage us to step back from our personal responsibility which I'm not advocating or recognize that we need to work with others which is what I am advocating yeah so that's how I think I mean the sociological imagination is a conceptual tool but I actually think it's a political tool as well 
Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What I hear in what you're describing is um, a fairly strong critique in many ways of the human services settings where uh, it's often about individuals working and to create individual change mm. in, in their clients. Now, I don't think that's always the case, but I think that's an important critique. It's part of what you're saying I hear is that there's a need to work together and collectively. I think there's a need to work together and collectively. I think there's a need to understand that that's necessary. There's also a need to recognise that um, human services workers are working in very constrained circumstances. So, you know, under processes of neoliberalism and new um, public management, um, what you can do is not just constrained, it's specified and it's accounted for and it's funded and you might well be working to key performance indicators as well and specific processes. Um, so while we all have a vision of what our job should be and could be, we often do end up working in very individualised ways with kind of immediately individualised aims and understandings because that's the nature of the institutions we work with. And that's not to say that managers um, in human services buy into that, but, again, they're working in institutions as well. So recognising the social and political and economic context of work is another kind of structure that's creating the logic of violence in any particular circumstance. That's excellent. Thank you for unpacking that because I think that really needs to be unpacked, that it's not simply about... Uh, this is the flip side of that critique which I, which you offered, I think, is that for the individual worker, it's not about them having to change everything. And, in fact, that's almost a freeing thing, saying you're going to encounter some violence and it's not your responsibility to fix it all, but neither is, um, is it your personal fault or is it, is it necessarily about you the violence you're encountering isn't because you failed as a worker or you haven't had the skills or, or even to broaden it from human mm. services workers to just the violence we might individually encounter in mm. our everyday interactions in society is that that doesn't have to necessarily be about you but is part of a broader system a broader structure a broader part of a culture that reinforces certain ways of behaving and responding to people and solving problems and all of these sort of connect into this idea of violence. And that goes back to the just the key sociology ideas of agency and structure So and the relationship between them. So agency is people's capacity and choice. Um, structure are the kind of recurring patterns in society that can facilitate or constrain particular actions or understandings. They don't sit separately from each other. They're mutually implicated. So we do have individual responsibility to try and sort stuff out. But the extent to which we can do that is going to be constrained or facilitated by all of these recurring patterns in society. Yeah, mm, Makes sense. Well, okay. Um, that's huge. <laughs> it's huge, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, yeah. The solutions aren't clear and simple, um, but we've got a bit of a sense that it requires a both-and way of thinking, you know, yeah. responsibility as well as a structural response. And you've talked a bit about those patterns that we can see like agency and structure as well yeah. as um, those broader cultures and um, sort of economic systems of, of that, that perform but also perpetuate violence. Are these... Uh, 
these systems, are they present? Do you see the same patterns across some of the other research that you're doing? We mentioned a few things yeah. that you, you are doing other than this project at the start, and I just wanted to come back to that a little bit before we finish and say perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about um, some of the work you're doing with child support payments or um, survivors of family violence. Are those, those, those areas reflecting the same sort of dynamic? I think, I think the key themes are that violence is gendered, it's lots of other things as well. It's raced, it's sexualized, it's aged, but it's gendered, um, and that's and that's my focus. Um, and by gendered, I don't simply mean that men perpetrate more violence or that women are more likely to be victims in particular circumstances, for example, um, in intimate relationships, but rather that violence reflects and reproduces gendered power in our society. So, you know, you asked before about how we understood violence. I guess part of the way we understand it is as an expression of power rather than just simple kind of physical or verbal contact, maybe. Sure, yeah. Um, so, so that's been really key. So when I started my work on child support, for example, I've always seen it as gendered power, but I um, published a paper last year that was arguing that when... Um, when men specifically deliberately withhold child support money, it can be understood as a form of financial abuse, which mm. is a form of violence. Mm. Um, so I've moved towards understanding um, power more as expressions of violence, perhaps, rather okay. than seeing violence as an expression of power. I think mm. that emphasis has changed slightly. And... Uh, I guess another thing that comes through really strongly is that um, the institutions that we work in or we, we work with or we're subject to do utterly shape um, the capacity and possibility for violence. So even if individual people aren't violent, and most people aren't violent, um, our institutions facilitate that violence if people are going to be violent um, mm. and make some groups vulnerable to that violence as well. Yeah, yeah. great. So you mentioned, and we didn't grab the detail at the time, uh, the the data that you've gathered um, through, the, I think you said there was 900 surveys that you complete, or sorry, that you're using um, that was, was yeah. done by, I can't remember the name of uh, the original study yeah the social policy research center did the did the survey yeah can you tell us about any findings that you have from that data your initial findings perhaps yeah i can so um we sort of looked at some descriptive analysis um and then some bivariate analysis so descriptive analysis is just looking at um frequency of things bivariate analysis is when you start to look at the relationship between two variables and then we did logistic regression, which looks at how a whole array of variables contribute to the odds of something happening. Great. Okay. Not that anyone needs to know that level of specificity, I imagine, but just to give you some sense of what we're talking about. Yeah, that's really great. Thank yeah. you. So when we're talking about descriptive analysis, um, what that survey, so that was the National Survey of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Workforces, what that survey um, found was... Around about half of the respondents reported bullying, harassment, violence or threats in the last 12 months. So of the 917 respondents, around about half had experienced some kind of um, 
client, and that was from clients, had experienced some kind of violent, client violence in the last 12 months, wow. which when you think about it, is a really high proportion of people who've had at least some experience of violence. And then um, of that group, 20%, so about fifth, had, uh, a fifth of that group had experienced three or more instances of client violence over the last 12 months. Wow. We don't know the severity of that violence. Okay. But in a way, the fact that you're subject to it is, you know, do, does something to you. Yeah. Does something to you. If you're going to identify it as violence, it's significant to you, isn't it? You know, yeah. So that was a violating experience. Yes, exactly. Um, that's what's important, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then we found that a little over one-third of the sample had experienced um, violence from a colleague at mm. least once, mm. and 16% had experienced um, violence from a colleague at least three times. What, what we find is that um, slightly higher proportions of men experience client violence and okay. higher proportions of women experience colleague violence. Wow. So there's that gendered aspect you were talking about before. There mm. is. And that's something to work through. Um, so existing research on um, client and colleague violence is mixed. So some studies find that Men experience higher rates of client violence. Some studies show that it's women. Some studies show that women experience higher rates of colleague violence. Some studies show that it's men experiencing it. Okay. It's a bit tricky in the human services because there are so few men. Mm. So that then is going to muddle the statistics a little bit. So even sure. when you find a statistically significant relationship you're dealing sometimes with quite small numbers. So mm. in our in in this it's not our survey, but but in that social policy research centre survey, eighty six percent of respondents were women, fourteen percent were men. So okay. that's that's probably contributing to not being able to get a really clear sense of the relationship between gender and colleague or client violence across multiple studies. Sure. So they're yeah. a little bit a little bit muddly. Yeah. Wow. Um, we also then looked at um, impacts, so we were interested to know if you are exposed to client or colleague violence, does it have an outcome? Mm. Yeah. So people who were exposed to three or more incidents of colleague or client violence were more likely to report feeling emotionally drained in their job, and they were also more likely to state that they were intending to leave the organisation. So you can kind of understand this as having a um, human impact and an organisational impact. You don't want workers feeling drained. You don't want workers changing their job if they didn't have to. That always has an element of upheaval to it. Mm. But from an organisation's point of view, you don't want to be losing your workers. Absolutely. That's got you know significant costs. You don't want to lose your institutional knowledge, just all of those concerns. Yeah. So... I think, again, it's important to realise that this violence, even though it it's, um, happens to individuals, is actually an organisational and institutional concern as well. Yeah, and that, I think gives a really good picture of the significance of the issue. Like, yeah. This is something that really yes. does have large costs to individuals and organisations. And given mm. that these organisations are often state-funded as well, to everybody, you know, we're all, our government costs, you know, coming from taxpayer-funded money. I was say, taxpayers' money, buddy. That's right. <laughs> Again, joke. That's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so what we did then was did a logistic regression which looked at um, the impact of a whole array of variables. I won't list them all. Some didn't have any statistically significant um, um, relationship with violence. But doing that logistic regression just reinforced the idea that um, client violence is an experience primary, or more likely to be experienced by men. So the odds of experience, experiencing client aggression were higher amongst men than women. Mm. The odds of experiencing colleague aggression were higher amongst women than men. So that's a pretty solid finding right. from our study. Yeah, um, for client violence, the odds of experiencing client aggression were lower amongst part-time workers which kind of makes sense because you don't have the same exposure. Sure. Um, we're lower amongst senior managers, which sure. again makes sense. You probably don't have the same level of day-to-day -day contact. Mm -hmm. But we're also lower amongst those who reported having regular individual supervision. So there's something about the support that your workplace is giving you that might be a protective factor against mm. client violence. Okay. Wow. My, th my thought instantly goes to kind of the institutional power that comes with uh, like a senior management role or you know, the regular supervision and a good mm. connection with um, your institution that that might, um, it might protect you in some way from, from the violence from a client. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's one of the... It shows the strengths and the shortcomings of survey research in that sure. we find this pattern. Mm -hmm. So supervision matters, but it's harder to understand why because we know that supervision can take various forms. It can be supportive or it can be more a kind of expression of surveillance. Yeah. I would be interested to know if it reflects um, supervisors who respond and take violence seriously. So if you go to your supervisor and they say, you say, this, this client, you know, has done something to me, they put in place something that either protects you from further um, violence or they understand that this is an issue and put in place something that proactively protects, right? Mm. So maybe then um, having regular individual supervision kind of stands in for supervisors who are responsive to their workforce needs. Sure. Maybe maybe yeah. that's what's happening there. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it is. Um we know too that um, for both colleague and client violence, um, odds ratios were lower for those who weren't facing workload pressures. So what that means is if you said, I feel under pressure in my job, you had, a, had greater odds of experiencing client and or colleague violence. Mm. So there's something about how work is set up to make make it difficult for workers that then creates these kind of facilitating structures um, Interesting. for violence. And again, trying to think through 
what those dynamics are is yeah. the challenge. Yeah. yeah. That is really challenging. And I appreciate that you kind of make that distinction between what you can yeah. say and what you can't and that there's something there that's significant but perhaps we can't pinpoint it just yet. I'm wondering if... Um, if you were able to, you know, in a dream world, go back yeah. and uh, maybe interview some of these people, what yeah. question would you ask them to really help you narrow down some of the um, cause and effect that's happening here? Oh, I think, I think I'd go and talk to people who had experienced um, violence and those who hadn't, those two groups. And, you know, with the supervision um, variable, for example, tell me about the last time you experienced violence talk to me about what your supervisor how your supervisor responded um you know does that reflect what's happening in your organization more generally so trying to think not just about that supervisor response but how that might capture something about how an organization is defining and interpreting and then responding to potential client violence for Mm -hmm. example um but i think there's a lot of value in just sitting down with people in um, when you're doing in-depth and semi-structured or unstructured interviews and just going, so what's the scoop, essentially? Just what do you reckon is going on? Because people do know, they're reflexive and they, yeah. they have great thoughts and great insights into their lives. Yeah, great. So trusting them as the experts and saying, you know, tell me about what's important to you, that's where we'll start. Totally, and giving people the space mm. to do that, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. That's really interesting. So if people wanted to hear more or investigate this idea more um, that we've been talking about, can you recommend a few resources for us to follow up? And perhaps as you do, tell us what we should be paying attention to in the, because sometimes it's easy to get lost in all the detail. So we've been drawing a lot on Michael Shear's work. Michael Shear is a North American um, social work academic who's done a lot of work on the well-being of social services workers, including work on the incidents and outcomes of violence against social services workers, um, looking at both colleague and client violence, but in separate papers and separate studies. Um, I think his work, and he collaborates with others, um, is particularly useful for getting some sense of the general patterns of violence that we see. So it's very useful basic data, which in no way is to denigrate it. That data, those data are incredibly useful, but it's a really good way of getting a sense of what this looks like um, in particular contexts. Right. I think the second resource I'd point people to um, is a lot of Donna Bain's work on how neoliberalism and new public management structures work, structures identities, structures client violence and social services. So she does, Donna Baines and her collaborators do a lot of qualitative work and their work really focuses on the organisational and socio-political context within which these violences um, are occurring and which are structuring those violences. Um, I particularly like a paper of hers that she wrote with Ian Cunningham called White Knuckle Care Work, Mm -hmm. where she looks at the gendered logics and expectations that normalise or render invisible violence against social workers as a a feminised workforce. Wow, great. 
Um, the third resource I think is really useful for people is just to go back to the initial report that was done out of the survey that we're doing secondary data analysis on. Um, so that survey was undertaken by people from the Social Policy Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. They were the people who collected the data, did the initial analysis and wrote the report. So they have um, the National Survey of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Workforces survey report, um, <laughs> and that's, that's available to the public. Um, awesome. And again, just useful, not just for violence, but getting a sense of just what are the patterns that we're seeing in this workforce that is explicitly oriented towards forms of violence and forms of gendered violence. Excellent. Mm. Thank you. They're great resources and we'll make sure we provide links to them where we can in the show notes. Um, so to wrap up, before we let you go, uh, if people wanted to find more out about your work, where would they find you on the internet? What's the best way to look you up? Oh, probably on the university website on the internet. Great. Um, which is the Flinders University website on the internet. That just collects all of my work. Yeah. Done. All right. Yeah. We can provide a link no to that. No worries. Yeah. And as the last thing, is there anything you're working on at the moment that you'd like to give a bit of a plug to that people could look up as well? Well, I'm not sure how accessible um, this is, but one thing that I am really excited about is that in a few weeks I'm going to a symposium at the University of Western Sydney, which is organised by Karen Soldatic and Louise St. Guillaume. And it's a social suffering symposium. So what they're doing is looking, is getting people together to talk about how those processes of neoliberalism are structuring not just violence but suffering, um, not into only people's lives but into the way that society is constituted. So I'm looking at the experiences of um, poor single mothers through these processes that's looking at state violence, right? Um, so excited is probably a bit enthusiastic for a deeply kind of distressing idea, but I'm really interested to see how people talk about and conceptualise these processes. Brilliant. Thank you so much. That sounds fascinating. Oh, look, um, the conversation has been enthusiastic, enjoyable, if those are the right words to use for such a, a dark topic. And we really appreciate your generosity and, and the way you've talked about all these range of stuff that you're up to. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Links to the resources discussed in the podcast are provided in the show notes. If you like the podcast, please share it widely. My name is Ben Lomar and thank you for listening to Exploring Violence and Society.